The war in Ukraine and rocketing commodity prices have shifted the dial on global energy security. Europe hopes to cut ties with Russian oil and gas supply. Coal is back on the minds of policymakers. And nuclear is being looked at afresh amid the sky-high prices. But how will this dynamic affect the pace of the energy transition? In this special episode, we speak to Richard Norse, founder of Greencoat Capital, one of Europe's largest renewable infrastructure managers, which was recently acquired by today's sponsor, Schroeder's Capital. And Karen Kaiser, who leads Greencoat's private market business in Europe. I'm Mina Tumai. And I'm Charles Wayne. And this is Spotlight. Richard Norse reflects on the current energy crisis, warning that the situation could still get worse before it gets better. If we get to a stage where the Russians actually do shut off supply and there is rationing, my taking is that we then go to a completely different place because we're kind of essentially then on a war footing. It's a totally, totally different mentality. Will we then want to enable offshore wind farms to get consented? Definitely. Society will demand we take much more vigorous action, exactly as we did in lockdown. Karen Kaiser adds that German policymakers are already starting to prepare for a tough winter. We're also sort of hearing from, you know, as you know, Germany has very energy intense industries. So we're hearing from you know, the chemical players, ceramic industries, you know, how dependent they actually are on Russian gas. And it's not even a replaceable one on one. So certain parts of the BSF factory actually don't work with non-pipeline gas. Yeah? It's definitely becoming more real. And I think there may be a bit of a wake up call in the next uh, six or 12 months. In Germany... Russian threats to block pipeline gas imports have already caused an about-turn on the phasing out of coal, a key pillar in the decarbonisation of the power sector, while the country still aims to shutter nuclear plants by the end of 2022. So what does this say about the shifting appetite for the energy transition? Well, I think Germany has been widely criticised for obviously turning off nuclear, but then, you know, coal not actually being a great replacement in the context of the energy transition. So I wouldn't see this as a major driver in the long term, obviously assuming that there are various other aspects that we need to make happen to accelerate the energy transition actually happen. You know, again, talking storage, talking grid and a few other elements. But assuming that that's happening, I can't see that coal will be a great road blocker in the very long term. Similar policy decisions in China to maintain coal-fired power production also have obvious energy security reasoning. The Asian giant is building more than half of the world's new capacity to help offset increasingly expensive energy imports. China is obviously the largest installer of renewables by a country mile. It's probably bigger than the whole of the rest of the world put together every year, year on, year on, year on, and installs more wind and more solar. But at the same time, also, its energy requirements are growing. second point then is, is that China obviously has been quite dependent on LNG imports. And as we saw as we came out of the pandemic, I think the LNG market got caught with a shortage, and that's part of the issue in Europe as well. And China was essentially unable to get the number of cargoes that it needed to supply itself. So therefore, it was kind of not really that surprising that just frankly out of necessity, it ran more coal, exactly as we've seen in Germany, as Germany's trying to husband its gas, it's burning more coal. And I guess that is not something that I think we should in any way criticise China for. I think it's just a reality. In the short term, some countries may roll back on their commitments to phase out fossil fuels. But is that a trend that will stick around for the long term? So, I mean, it seems to me to be utterly clear that we need to basically try to provide energy at an affordable price at the amount that people want. So I think the key is going to be we need to start to make this transition more vigorously than perhaps we have been. And I think politicians are seeing that and they're seeing the energy security needs in the same way that they were happy to watch vaccine plants go outside of their country and shut in their own countries. I think there's hardly a large country in the world that's now not actively building a vaccine plant. I'm sure we'll see the same with renewables. The great thing about renewables, other than the fact that it's low carbon and it's now cheap, is is that it's made on your own doorstep. So therefore, it's politically quite appealing. 
Yeah, I suppose we don't see a way around using fossil fuels in the short term. You know, while we are building up capacity in the renewable sector, I mean, that's also a reason why Germany, for example, may be falling behind its coal phase out in the near term. Maybe to just you know, give it a little bit more color in terms of you know, what actually short term means. You know, obtaining a permit can take up to nine years for wind projects in Europe. Uh, in Germany, it's five years. Now, that's not exactly quick, even if it's you know, quicker than some other countries. Solar is taking four to five years, so you know, that's why it's taking so long. So the other bit is that it's not only about renewable build-out, it's also about the grid and building that out and you know, countries falling behind with their grid build-out plans. And it's also about how do you actually develop the storage side of things and in what time frame do you develop the storage side of things to really become you know, more independent of fossil fuel supplies. We've talked about supply chain issues, but what are the other factors to consider in the transition? The sort of cost of renewable assets have increased, I think, something between 10 and 15% or so in the last 12 months. Um, the good news is that it's still you know, 40% cheaper than more conventional types of energy. So I think you know, a challenge there is not only general supply chain, and you know, that also is not only parts, but it also comes down to labor and you know, actually having the competent staff to install all this, this massive asset base, which is sort of meant to be installed in the next decade. And you know, truthfully, much of the European you know, factories and, and renewables have been shut down in you know, China is full of them. So, you know, is there a reason to almost you know, source back into Europe, uh, not only for pure supply chain, but also from an ESG perspective, um, noting some of the issues going on in you know, certain areas of China and, and factories there. So I think we may see a shift back into Europe to actually ensure supply chain there. In India, they're obviously taking production steps to really, really ramp up their production, particularly of solar panels, to provide essentially not just a domestic source of solar panels for use in India. India is obviously a big renewables market, but also to now take up where China's left off to the extent that the panels don't get started to be produced in Europe. So I think it'll be really more a question of the geopolitics of are we content to have China as the not quite sole source, but it's pretty dominant source at the moment of solar panels. Whereas in wind, almost no windmills are made in China, albeit components and towers and things are mostly because of carbon pricing. If the EU introduces a carbon border adjustment, which is being talked about, then I think that will change and that will all come back to Europe again. In Europe, volatility and energy security concerns have also seen renewed interest in nuclear power. But is this feasible at this point? There are really only two nuclear files in Europe of scale. One is the French. That scale is substantially different to the UK scale with around 60 reactors. And the other one is the UK with around eight reactors. I think the thing that the Germans probably might now think wasn't the right idea was is that perhaps they might not want to build new nuclear but I think most people would agree that having to run your existing nuclear, as long as it's safe, longer is probably sensible from a climate point of view. I think that from an energy security point of view, nuclear really isn't going to move the needle for the, the short while, is it? So if you rang up and said, I'd like to buy a nuclear power station, please, it's probably going to take you five years in consenting and then probably five to ten years to get it built. And so we're talking mid-2030s, by which time renewables should have done most of the job. Despite the pandemic and now greater economic uncertainty, the pace of private investment in renewables has shown little sign of slowing. In 2021, global energy transition investment hit $755 billion, according to Bloomberg NEF, a massive 27% annual rise and more than $200 billion higher than levels achieved in 2019. The International Energy Agency also estimates that last year, a record-breaking 290 gigawatts in renewable energy capacity was added globally, but if that trend persists, renewables could overtake fossil fuels and nuclear combined by 2026. A confluence of factors has contributed to this growth, from increasing political will to institutional investors and stakeholders becoming more aligned to decarbonisation strategies, 
and bullish about the role of renewables. But given the mountain of capital still needed to fund the energy transition, what role will financing structures need to play? So historically, investments into the renewable sectors have been highly levered and very focused about capital gains. That's not necessarily what we see as being the right type of capital um, to deploy for the long run and to really deploy at scale. So what we like to do at GreenCode, what we like about the asset class is low technology risk, predictable resource, and ideally you also have an element of revenue contract predictability. So you're really giving your cash flows a secure nature. Now we're holding the assets for the long run, low to little leverage, full payout. But while it sounds pretty boring, it was relatively unique when we started investing and it's worked really well for our client base. So we can actually see a massive opportunity to just continue doing that and really roll that out across Europe, really allocate private capital into the sector. Karen's obviously being a little bit modest in that she was at the heart of creating sort of what's now one of the most sort of substantial funds in the market. But at the time, it was really pretty novel to provide private capital at scale to invest into renewables. But the near-term impact of volatility and the potential for governments to prioritise fossil fuel supply will clearly pose a threat to the pace of energy transition. You now the renewable markets in Europe is sort of forecast to almost double until 2030. So that is a lot of capital to be putting at risk. How do we actually raise that private capital and what are the sort of challenges? I think the other challenge is just actually making sure that these projects are delivered at scale and really working closely with asset developers and utilities to actually make it happen. There are plenty of exciting opportunities for private investors and they aren't necessarily the things that are making headlines. So in the UK, we have around £120 billion roughly of renewable energy infrastructure assets. And despite the fact that we get asked about batteries about three times a day, the battery market, if it grows to the largest extent that I think it's thought to grow, might become a four billion, five billion pound market. So therefore, it's really doing the boring well and doing the boring in a way that works for investors. That's the kind of key to the transition first. Second, then it's going to be these infill points that we've talked about. So hydrogen, obviously, albeit that if we move rapidly towards significant amounts of renewables in the short term, hydrogen will be a necessity not so much as the Swiss army knife that we usually see it at, but more as a mopper-upper of surplus electrons on sunny, windy days. So I think that things like that, plus better grid controls, and there's a whole series of sort of investable areas that are slightly away from where we are now, but will become interesting. And in those early days, they'll probably have slightly higher returns, and we're expecting to be able to invest into those sort of markets, but also expect to see us sort of doing a few more things to sort of really enable the energy transition by providing the sort of the infiller the the cement between the bricks to allow those bricks to get laid to allow us all to then get to where we need to from an energy security a price and also a carbon point of view considering the amount of capital needed to deliver the energy transition current volatility and market insecurity make for unfortunate timing but renewables are also becoming more cost competitive and investors remain bullish i mean i think it comes back to this kind of characteristics of why they're so investable so you know on the one hand you know there's a societal need for renewables and the energy transition and the energy security as well as the climate agenda. And on the other hand, these are great investments. We, I think, you know, kind of often let ourselves get carried away with the much bigger topics of climate and energy security, when actually these just are great cash flow generating assets. And that's why, as Karen said earlier, we think investors like them. And in a world where income is important, and a lot of investments sort of rely on a great outcome, you know, some way out in the future, the sort of the here and now of what a wind farm producer or a solar farm produces or a biomass plant produces is very attractive. Thanks to Richard Norse, founder of Greencoat Capital. 
and to Karen Kaiser, who heads up Greencoat's private market business in Europe, for joining us. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe, rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts or at any of PEI Media's various titles online. I'm Charles Wayne. And I'm Mina Tumai. Thanks for listening.